Hello, my name's Chris Davis and welcome to Model Office's 16th episode in our Science of Compliance podcast series, where we're showcasing that governance, risk and compliance doesn't need to be as painful as completing your tax returns, but can support sustainable and profitable practice. In this episode, we're delighted to host Oxford Risk's Head of Behavioural Finance, Dr. Greg Davies, to discuss how applied decision science and behavioural finance can aid financial service firms and their clients to meet ongoing regulatory requirements. So let's listen in. Here we are on our 16th episode in our Science of Compliance podcast, where we aim to debunk myths around compliance being a business prevention unit to show how governance, risk and compliance can enable your business to not only survive, but thrive, particularly now through turbulent times. In this episode, we welcome Oxford Risk's Head of Behavioural Finance, Dr. Greg B. Davies, to better understand his practical experience in the emergence of applied decision science and its benefits to risk management against a background of increasing regulations and market risk. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hi, Chris. Very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad. Great to have you on the uh, the show, to, so to speak. Um, we normally kick off these sessions with just a, you know getting to know a bit, a bit bit about our guests. So if you just tell us a bit about your background and your career journey to where you are today, it'd be really helpful. Yeah, with pleasure. Um, well, I suppose I, I'm not from the UK originally. I, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, and started in very traditional forms of finance, so quantitative finance, a lot of work on risk management, the sort of geeky quanty side of, of, yep. of finance, um, which I, I did mostly in a consulting context. Um, and then uh, there was a point at which um, I got staffed as the, the project lead on, on uh, the first Basel III implementation project of the consultancy I was working for, and I could see nothing but regular, regulatory implementation stretching ahead of me as far as the eye could scan. Mm. So I took that opportunity to go back to university and uh, in a moment of pure self-indulgence, just chose to do something that I thought was really interesting, which yep. was uh, behavioral finance, this cross between psychology and finance theory. And, and when I was started it, really, um, this was at the turn of the millennium. Uh, it was genuinely considered to be the lunatic fringe of the economics. <laughs> Um, and I just thought it was fascinating, this combination of, of, of finance, of psychology, of philosophy, of mathematics. Uh, and so I spent a number of years doing a PhD in that. Um, and what was interesting is at the point at which, for about, about 18 months in, Daniel Kahneman, the, you know, the father of behavioral economics, he won his Nobel Prize in mm -hmm. 2002, I think it was. And suddenly this field that was a very arcane area of academia started shooting into prominence and people started thinking about, well, actually behavior, emotion, personality, these things influence our decisions, they influence our financial decisions. And it, it's, it turned what for me had been a, you know, a self-indulgent um, degree into something that potentially had a career path to it. Mm. Um, finished, finished the undergrad, finished the, finished the PhD. Um, and then, uh, went back out into the industry and uh, I joined Barclays, uh, Barclays Wealth in 2006 to set up the world's first dedicated team of behavioral finance specialists inside a bank, um, which no one really knew what we were going to do. Um, and in fact, I didn't really know what we were going to do either. So it was a, what led from that was really a decade of experimentation of how and where can we bring 
behavioral science to bear inside uh, the practical functioning of a bank. And a lot of that was around, uh, because I was in the wealth management side of things, was around suitability. How do we ensure that this client is getting the portfolio and the investment advice that is suitable for them? Yeah. So strong connections to, to compliance and regulation right from the outset, but bringing a very um, behavioral angle to that. Right. Got you. And I think that's where I first met you, actually. When that's back right. In probably a decade ago now when uh, I was researching to, for my first book which uh, which which uh, was sent out to much acclaim in the industry winning client trust but um, yeah I, I remember those days and um, with regarding um, behavioral science and and um, and you mentioned uh, Kahneman and, um, and you've also got the the books by Dana really predictably irrational and yeah uh, and, the, and the nudge theory and so forth by Thaler and um, Sustine and the rest. Um, that's been, you know, obviously a big influence for the FCA. The FCA was launched in 2013 on the back of behavioral economics, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Would you say now that it's on, on the wane or would you say that it's getting stronger and stronger in the industry? It comes in waves. Mm -hmm. So what was interesting when I started um, in, in 2006 in the industry, most of of our effort as a team was frankly just convincing people internally to pay attention to it at all. Yeah. Uh, and it felt like a real uphill struggle for a while. And then came the financial crisis and suddenly everyone realized how fundamentally important emotional responses um, and psychology was to financial decision making. And there was a surge of interest in behavioral finance post the financial crisis of, of 08, 09. And it's in the wake of that that the, um, you know, the, obviously the, the FCA was born out of the old FSA. And they set up their own internal behavioral team, I think, in 2012. Mm -hmm. and so that, that has continued to roll forwards. But then it, it sort of fell back again. And I, and I think one of the reasons for that was everyone found it really interesting. Oh, wow, look at all these books, you know, many, many of those that, that you have mentioned. Um, and, and isn't this fascinating? Nudge unit was set up in the UK government, etc., um, and, and then there was an, a period where people thought, OK, well, you know, it's interesting to talk about. And we started getting feedback. Oh, this behavioral stuff. It's all just, you know, cute stories and parlor games because it wasn't really making a difference in a, in a way often. I think, you know, people would read the books they'd find it fascinating, um, but it wasn't changing anything fundamental. And I have a few views on, on why that is. But one of the most fundamental for me is. The behavioral overlay to an already complex world of finance takes a lot of people's jobs that are already difficult and complex and makes them more so. So even if all of the behavioral science that you're trying to inject into the industry is sensible and if it's followed, it leads to better outcomes, etc. If you've essentially just made people's lives harder, it's not going to find its way uh, into the systems very effectively. Sure. So, you know, there was this pullback to go, well, isn't it fascinating, but is it actually making a difference anywhere? Um, interestingly, with, with COVID, uh, we've seen another resurgence. Um, but now I think it's on firmer ground because I've, I've said for many, many years that behavioral finance on its own is pretty useless. It's not until it is coupled with traditional finance theory, with organizational design, with compliance, with technology, with data analytics. If, if it's blended in with all of these other things, it becomes powerful. If it's sitting on its own as you know, a PowerPoint presentation, look at this interesting stuff, now put it into your job, 
it just doesn't budge the needle at all. Yeah, I, mean, I totally understand that. I mean, we <clears throat> we built Model Office with a lot of behavioral science behind it, really. Um, mainly things like gamification and and obviously making making compliance far more engaging. Um, yeah. You know, heat map dashboards and, and so forth, and that's re really important. What we what we tend to find is that that um, also you've got the endowment theory, if you like, that um, when you've got clients <clears throat> or customers or, or firms uh, in in our world who effectively input their compliance um, questionnaire questions through the diagnostics and then they get their scores then they buy into their scores and they buy into the reasons of why they're performing well and also what they need to do to improve so it's all that buying in process which is which is kind of important it's a bit like cash flow modeling i guess it's a similar process um, yeah. where, where clients are buying into their data buying into their uh, their, their information so on that um, premise when you've talked it was really interesting stuff when you talked about the resurgence which is obviously using uh, behavioral finance but also adding in there the key areas around like you've mentioned data analytics and so forth um, where do you see data analytics um, working in in the world of financial advice and and compliance in particular where do you see it um, playing a key role well we work under the, the premise that what we're trying to do is to help people make better financial decisions. Yep. Now, if you want to do that at scale, um, by which, you know, I don't just want to make help a few very high net worth people um, make better decisions because I've given their advisors some tools. But if you really want to help better decision making at scale, you really can't deliver it without the benefit of data and technology. Because to make an individual um, to help an individual make better financial decisions, what you put in front of them in terms of the, let's just use nudges as a, as a catch-all here, in terms of the nudges or the communications you put in front of them, needs absolutely to be personalized to their situation and to their financial personality. Right. You simply can't do that at scale unless you are deploying data analytics to understand at an individual level what it's appropriate to put in front of this person now and and, uh, and 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 what might be most effective in nudging their behavior towards something that's in their in their own best interests. So I think um, to do anything large scale with behavioral science, it's utterly inseparable from good data analytics and it's utterly inseparable from um, from digital technology, which also means it's inseparable from from good design. So the whole you know sphere of information design and, and UX design, these things, are part of what changes behavior. And so increasingly, we think of them just as facets of the same underlying thing. The, the, the academic behavioral science gives us some nice firm foundations for it, but to make it functional, you, you need to be constantly personalizing with, with data in real time. I'll give you, um, if I may, there's a, a, an sure. example that I think is, is very relevant here from, from COVID. So financial suitability in the wealth management or the financial advice context is typically, um, firstly, not very behavioral. It's you know, fairly standard fact find. Tell me about your, you know, your assets and your liabilities. It's usually very front loaded in the sense that you do most of your your client fact find and client profiling at the beginning of the relationship, and it's very human heavy. So yep. it's very costly. It's it's often very uh, static after that first. Let me figure out the right answer. So March 2020, when COVID started biting all of us and the markets plummeted around the world, it was interesting because the, the right answer for someone's suitable portfolio 
really should be very finely tuned to their financial circumstances. Yeah. And yet what we found there is every wealth manager around the world simultaneously had the financial circumstances of every one of their clients changing in a very short period of time, in a period of weeks. So a traditional wealth management suitability process that has an annual review built in that's very human heavy was utterly incapable of responding to the right answer for these people as their incomes dried up, as their plans change, as you know, the portfolio drops in value. Mm -hmm. And if, you're, if you think about compliance and, and suitability as ensuring that people have the thing that's suitable for them, you, can't, you simply can't rely on a very slow, human-heavy process that in, in 11 months' time is going to check in and see has anything changed in your life when every single one of your clients have had their financial circumstances changing in the last week. So that is where being able to harness the regulatory framework to digitally responsive tools that are capable of keeping track of people's financial circumstances are capable of keeping track of what is their likely emotional response to this sort of crisis and figuring out what to say to them at that moment. These are absolutely necessary precursors to, be, to being able to help those people in the way that the regulation aspires them to be helped. Yeah, no, that's really, really cute and and very on the money, I think. And I think we're, you know, certainly with with a, a black swan event like the the pandemic, um, what you have seen is in, in certain, certain kind of like um, areas where you're talking about the fund management world, for example, is they suffer from their own biases too, right? So yeah. obviously they've got a knee-jerk reaction going on, which is a lot of it is self-preservation um, in, in more ways than one as well. It's not really necessarily about helping their clients. Which, which I kind of, I kind of get. Um, um, what I'm also interested in is, um, I think before I go into the next level of talking about, you know, challenges the industry is facing, particularly around compliance, I think it'd be good for our, for those um, listeners out there who don't know you that well. Um, it would be great to learn a bit about uh, what you're currently doing and what you're doing with, at Oxford Risk and, and the good work Oxford Risk are doing. Yeah, sure. Um, so Oxford Risk, as the name implies, is a, is a spin-out of Oxford University that was set up some 20 years ago by um, some senior decision science and behavioral science academics. So it has been um, very focused on behavioral science right from the outset. Um, but it's had a few instantiations over its life. And, and for the last 10 or 12 years, really what Oxford Risk did was um, provide very thorough and robust assessments of um, psychometric dimensions like risk tolerance. If you're going to give someone the right portfolio for their for their needs, you need to understand their risk tolerance. And it's not something you can get just by asking someone a question because invariably they give you an answer to a different question. So if I want to give you the right portfolio for your long-term needs, I need to know what your psychological willingness is to trade off risk and return in the long term. But if I ask you that, what I'm invariably getting is an answer to the question, how do you feel about risk this morning? And that is a very poor foundation for building someone a portfolio they're going to be holding for the next 10 or 15 years. So Oxford Risk did that in a very thorough way. Um, I joined four years ago really to, to help them build out um, a much broader toolkit around suitability. So we essentially do three things. We do client understanding. We build psychometric profiling tools. We can measure now up to 18 different dimensions of financial personality with off-the-shelf tools that are very quick and fast. 
Um, and some of those are traditional things like risk tolerance. Some of them are more about your preferences for ESG and sustainability and, and various ways of, of representing that in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So the client understanding, you know, who are you? What does your balance sheet look like? All the fact find stuff. Second pillar is, is matching. So crunching all of that information um, uh, algorithmically to create a thoroughly robust digital audit trail of here is the right answer for you. Here is why we've arrived at that right answer from all the bits of information that we have on you. And to my COVID example, <clears throat> here is how we can update that very rapidly as we observe things change in your, in your life. So figure out the right answer. And the third one is unfortunately, in almost all of financial decision making, telling people the right thing for them to do is not enough for them to do it. So we also have to give people enough emotional comfort to buy that portfolio and to stick with it through all the ups and downs of the of the markets and the pandemics, et cetera. So that's about emotional guidance. So we yep. provide systems that can hyper-personalize real-time communications and narratives and nudges along the journey to try and help people to stick with or get closer to a good portfolio over time. So in essence, it's use of technology to help people more comfortably make better decisions. Sounds good. Um, and that brings us nicely on to what regulatory issues your, you know, Oxford Risk are, <clears throat> are helping advisor firms tackle, really. Um, and one of the things uh, that you have already mentioned is, is ESG and uh, sustainability. Um, mm. And what we're now seeing, obviously, with sustainability, you've got the new MIFID 2 um, information coming through, directives coming through regarding the new kind of um, uh, suitability requirements. Where, what, what, what good work have, have Oxford Risk done, ar- done around that to ensure that, you know, advisor firms are now beginning to expand their suitability assessment, incorporating ESG and, and, and sustainability? Yes. So I actually started looking at the behavioral science of this problem way back in 2014, 2015, before I joined Oxford Risk. Um, because it is an inherently behavioral problem. Um, you, what you're asking people to do is to weigh up how strong are your preferences and your convictions for doing social good with your wealth, for achieving non-financial outcomes with your wealth versus your need to, to have an optimal risk return portfolio and the right risk levels. So it's all about people's preferences and about their trade-offs. And again, what has typically happened in this area is wealth managers or or banks have built a a shelf of things that they painted green and then they make the advisor or the or the end consumer choose which of those they want in other words they have placed all of the burden of decision making onto the customer or onto the advisor which Mm -hmm. makes their lives more difficult and people quite reasonably go well you know what this is all complex enough anyway of course, I want to do social good with my wealth, but I'll do that through philanthropy and I'll just keep my finances about finances. And what we want to do is to unlock that, that middle ground, and that's where the regulation is going. So we've been building tools to help people profile and understand their preferences for doing social good with their wealth. Um, and it's a bit like you know, measuring risk tolerance. I understand your willingness to trade off risk in return. There's a bunch of things I can measure about your preferences that tell me how strongly you want to engage with ESG, how much you are willing to think about balancing your social outcomes with your financial outcomes. And the crucial thing here is, I think it's not good enough just to measure preferences and play back to people and say, oh, we think you're high, medium or low on this. 
Mm. We have been building effectively ESG suitability overlays that can take all of that in information, integrate it with the standard client fact find information, and actually come back to people with a recommended portfolio. Because the advantage of there is the system, the tool, and all the thinking we've put into it has done the hard work for people. You're not placing the burden on the advisor or placing the burden on the consumer to do all the decision making, which naturally they just want to step away from. So in a way, what we've been building is a, a suitability system, starting from profiling, leading through to portfolio construction that takes all of that personalized client's information and gives them a recommended answer off the back of it. Um, and that seems to be where the regulators are going, although rather, rather slowly at this point. But they're definitely talking about the need to understand consumer and investor preferences for ESG. And what follows naturally from that is once I know your preferences, I also need to tell you what you should be doing about it. In other words, how, how is this reflected in your portfolio? So at Oxford Risk, we've been basically extending our suite of suitability tools to cover ESG profiling, to cover um, an ESG suitability overlay to standard wealth management suitability. Okay, and that's that's you know integral to to what I've just mentioned, really, which is really the the MIFID stuff and what well, is coming down the line later on this year in the sense of yeah. The new suitability, uh, expanding, if you like, the advice suitability processes and incorporating the sustainability uh, preferences, as you've talked about. Yeah. I think one of the other areas which is interesting, I appreciate your views on, Greg, is is the move with the FCA to this new outcomes focus, if you like, on regulation. So, you know, principles-based, risk-based at the moment, moving to a more outcomes focus where, you know, the FCA want you know, to look at what are the good outcomes they want to see, then track it back like that, that way to, to look at making sure that, that the regulations are doing their job. Um, and the problem with that that I see, and we're just actually, we're just going to be publishing a paper on this very shortly, but what, what we see as is, is, is the problem with it is that, the, you know, the clients um, can point fingers here quite easily and say, well, that wasn't the outcome that I said at, this, at the outset um, uh, that I wanted with my portfolio. Um, uh, and therefore, that can create problems in the whole suitability process going backwards. So the key to this is evidence-based practice and data, I, uh, I would imagine. And yeah. in your world, I can imagine that your um, risk you know, assessment pro pro processes and your technology can, can eno help enormously with that process of making sure firms are locking down these good outcomes um, in, into a more scientific um, program. So yeah. do you have any views on that? I do, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, investing is interesting because you can have the perfect investment product for your needs. Um, and even though it's absolutely spot on right for you and you've done everything right, you could just lose money because mm. it's, it's risky. So a focus on outcome in that sense, I think, is, is, is very harmful. And we need to differentiate between outcomes in aggregate um, are, are the, and, and outcomes of a specific situation because everything could be right and the person could, could still lose money. Mm. And that's where I think it absolutely becomes vital to evidence the process by which you've got that. You know, if, if this person has been holding this portfolio and was advised to hold this portfolio, can you demonstrate exactly why that portfolio was arrived at? What was, what, what, how did it connect to all of the pieces of data that you have on that person's financial personality, on their current balance sheet, on their current plans, goals, and cash flows. And if those have changed, can we evidence that we have changed the solution as a result? Now, once you have due process thoroughly auditable like that, it is very difficult for someone to be 
in the right thing that just turned out badly and argue back that I should be re I should be compensated because I had a bad outcome. So I think process, you know, and this is one of the, the key implications of, of behavioral science is you can never really judge a good or a bad decision just by looking at, looking at whether it turned out well or badly because the world is an uncertain place and good decisions sometimes turn out badly and bad decisions sometimes accidentally turn out well. Yeah. So if you're to judge these things and if you're to be able to judge advisors, you really need to to focus on how was the decision arrived at and to what degree can we determine was it appropriate or, or inappropriate. Now, I don't think that means you ignore outcomes because mm -hmm. what the FCA clearly needs to do is to make sure in aggregate over the over the market that the outcomes are better for clients than they would have been through, through other alternatives. But we need to be very careful of judging at the rightness of a decision um, by looking at the outcomes at an individual case by case thing, because you know you just you, you you could have the situation where someone just accidentally does very well or accidentally does very badly. Sure, no, I get that. Um, and moving, I mean, moving on, on, on which which kind of covers the the, the 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 process that I've just talked about in the sense of making making get you know trying to get clients to make the right decision um, or the best decision because you know I guess there's no ultimate decision that, that's going to provide the perfect solutions by any means. But yeah. when we're talking about um, decision-making and um, the, the fact-finding process and all the good work that advisors do uh, in, in suitability um, um, assessment, you've um, used the phrase consistently in the marketplace um, over the last decade, um, which, which basically looks at uh, decision prosthetics. Um, can you just explain a bit about that and how that works? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, a prosthetic is something that helps you to do something that you can't otherwise do effectively yourself. So, you know, if you've injured your leg, you use crutches, etc. Yep. Now, decades now of behavioral science tell us that we as humans are extremely fallible in many ways in our decision making. And, um, and that the use of processes and tools to improve decision makers can make decision makers more consistent, less error prone, more reliable. So we could think of all of these tools as effectively decision prosthetics. What we should do as humans is there's a certain amount. Well, actually, if we want to be less error prone, we should minimize the number of decisions we make in the moment. And we should maximize the number of decisions that are made by following due process that we have thoughtfully set up earlier. And the whole set of, of processes and principles and rules that will govern decision making are things that you can bake in ahead of time thoughtfully. And it doesn't mean there are not exceptions. It doesn't mean this is a computer says yes, computer says no. But what you want to do is to remove as much as possible the possibility of humans making impulsive, emotionally led decisions in the heat of the moment. And all of that paraphernalia of the rules and the processes we can think of as prosthetics for decision making. Yeah. We're trying to not remove the human, but make sure that the good bits of human uh, decision making are systematized with a little bit of space for 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 you know adding in some some in some spice at the end, some 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 human spice at the end, but trying to minimize the chances that that human advisors or human anyone's um, will just be making it up on the spot. And not be aware of it because they're doing so in a biased way. Sure, and I think that's really 
<clears throat> really important. I mean, what what the latest book, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, um, by Kahneman is is noise, and he talks a bit <laughs> about this in the sense that he talk he talks about the fact that when you've got noise and and and, and but so noise is, is 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 everything that goes out you know around as a decision the time you wake up in the morning if you wake up in a good mood bad mood and so forth, um, and then you've obviously got the biases which you've just talked about and explained very well. Um, what, what the, the interesting thing, uh, the, the example w- w- that, that he came out with that is that if you've got a, a project that you're working on in a, in, in a business, um, it's best to break it down into teams and not look at the whole um, problem, but looking at it individually and then coming together as a team. And it's what Steve Jobs used to do really well at Apple, if you think about it, because you used to have multiple teams to look at how you de- design, for example, an iPad. And they'd all come back, come back, and they'd all come back with their own stuff, um, their own solutions. And then he'd pick three or four that he thought were great, and then he'd go and do the same thing again until he got what he wanted. And I thought that that that's that's a really nice way to look at it in in the sense of of, of blending down that really the, the decision making that can make all the knee jerk stuff, which he which Kahneman calls, I guess, um, uh, which is which is system one, isn't it? Um, that he talks mm-hmm. about regarding the two systems. So I think the prosthetics idea is is is, is a is a wonderful way to, to look at it. When we're looking at... Um, can, I, can I just... Sorry, yeah, go for it. I'm glad you brought up the noise thing because it is, it is so misunderstood in, in our industry. I mean, in fact, it's, it's, I think, blithely ignored to the last large degree. Yep. So just before their book came out, which was this time last year or a bit later, yep. um, we had been running a large-scale noise audit. Um, this was on South African advisors. Um, we had several hundred financial advisors and what we did is, is a sort of noise audit that of exactly the sort that Kahneman um, uh, et al. were recommending in their book. And you go to, let's say, 300 advisors, and you give each of these advisors six client case studies. And in that case study is all the information they would need to arrive. You know, of course, you know, there's, there's bits and pieces missing at the edge, right, because they are case studies. But essentially got all the information you'd need to arrive at pretty much the right level of risk to recommend to this person. And for these case studies, six case studies, we gave them to all of these 300 advisors. And we said, right, you've got all this information. What is the answer you would give to this person? And what you would hope to see is that those 300 advisors more or less give client A the right answer, client B the right answer, client C the right answer. Because as an advisory client, it really should not be the case that the advice you're given is a lottery according to which advisor you happen to be assigned to on the day. And what we found was unsurprising, given the work in Kahneman's book, but the advice was all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. In every single one of these six uh, case studies, the recommended equity allocation across the advisors varied from 0% to 100% equities for every (laughs) single client. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this isn't bias. Right? This is this is just noise. And I think we have subsequently done that work. This one we've published. I can I can send you a link to the to the paper. Please do. We'll put it. We'll we'll put it when we publish the podcast. Yeah, we've we've actually done uh, we've done this subsequently for a large uh, UK wealth manager who was brave enough to do it um, internally. Mm-hmm. Found exactly the same results. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it's quite it's quite dramatic. And when you think all of this regulation that all of these advisors are following is there to ensure that the client gets the right answer. And even with all of that regulation, the actual answers that the clients are being given, you could drive an oil tanker through it. Mm. So, you know, this is where, again, the prosthetics become essential because why are advisors noisy? Well, because it's complicated. 
And different advisors, when they have a client in front of them, will be focusing on different bits of information. And they'll all think that they are using all this information consistently, but some of them will be weighting this bit more, some of it will be weighting it less, some of it will think this thing is really important. They'll be seeing different things, they'll be combining it in different ways. Um, and as a result, exactly the same client gets a very different answer, not only which advisor they see, but sometimes which day of the week they see that advisor and how the advisor is feeling and whether they've had a good breakfast. And these are the things that, you know, even with all the paraphernalia of advice and suitability, the advice that is given to, uh, to actual clients is extremely noisy. Yeah, absolutely. And no, I completely concur with that. There has been a whole piece of work um, around this and, and robo advisors as well. Uh, and robos delivering all sorts of different um, risk levels for clients uh, based on the fact that their algorithms have been built with lots of noise um, yeah. and bias as well. So that that's an interesting concept. I'd love love to see that. So if you can send that over to us, Greg, we'll make that we'll, we'll publish that with our with, with yeah, the podcast. Absolutely. Um, well. Thanks for that. So running running short of time now. So a few <laughs> a few, a few final ones uh, for, from our, our side. Um, just tell us about. You know, if you could change one thing about this industry, what would it be? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I think uh, I think it, this connects to my example about COVID. We need to think of advice and suitability as being dynamic. It needs to be responsive to changes in client circumstances far, far more than it is now. This notion that you can sit someone down in a room and come up with the right answer for their 20-year portfolio, and every year you have a sort of light touch check-in, this whole notion of suitability is nowhere near responsive enough to the changing needs of the client. So dynamic suitability would be the one I would say. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, thank you for that. And where would you see yourself and Oxford Risk in five years' time? Final question. <laughs> well, um, we've been growing actually gratifyingly rapidly over the last two years so i think coming out of the, the uh, out of the covid pandemic it's really pushed uh, hard on the pace of digitalization mm -hmm. which is which is core to us you know behavioral meets digital meets data um and so we are building a whole raft of tools around suitability but really where we want to focus much more is outside of just the advice and the um, and the investment decision-making industry into broader financial well-being. So helping people to navigate the irreducible complexity of their financial existence by, by thinking not just about investments, but savings, debt, insurance, and how all of these things connect together. Because the average person out there, um, yes, maybe they need a little bit more help buying a better investment product, but what they really need is help navigating complexity. Yep. So we want to, through this combination of behavioral and, and personalization, help people to be more comfortable with improving their financial well-being. Wonderful. That's a great way to end it. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. Very much appreciated. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Thank you. All the best. Well, where do we start? What an episode. Always great to speak to Greg. Um, always talking about a topic close to our hearts at Model Office. We build Model Office around behavioral science. Um, and I think Greg's a real thought leader um, in this space. Uh, all the great work that he did with Barclays and now with Oxford Risk uh, in behavioral finance. 
And um, I think Greg's key themes of um, looking at emotional responses versus important decision making, um, using technology as an enabler platform, you know, he talks about it as uh, prosthetics uh, that can help. Uh, um, you know, human beings realize where they're being fallible, you know, understand their biases, the negative effect it has or can have, um, and, and using data analytics really to ensure that, they, that, that we're making better decisions based on evidence um, so that we, we know um, that we, we're making the, the, you know, the right decisions to manage the risks as we go along. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you've got any um, themes that you'd like us to speak about, if you'd like to guest on these podcasts, please get in touch with us, info at model-office.co.uk. But for now, thanks for listening in. Mm-hmm.